It's not very dramatic, Steve, when you are already out here. I was expecting the can-can down the stairs. That's for the exit. <laughs> um, thanks, everybody, for coming tonight. Uh, we're going to try and uh, have a fun conversation, not uh, too structured. Um, part of the difficulty of the task at hand is that Steve asked me to come out and introduce his book uh, with a general wrap-up of uh, its plot and characters and main themes, which is uh, very difficult because on the surface of it, you think that's going to be quite easy. We've been friends for a long time. I love the book, and I thought, who better to come out and introduce his book? Although, as I put my mind to the task, I thought it's quite a bit more difficult to sum up what's in this extremely intricate, complex and, by turns, I think, funny, sad and moving book, uh, particularly when it says book about two friends, uh, like us. Based on us, I, I... Well, I hope that's the big revelation for tonight. <laughs> but then I... It's funny, I just, I, want, I, started reading, I started reading reviews because I thought reviewers will say it faster and better than I will. But then I, I happened upon a fan website and I, just, I, I wanted just to read one fan review because it's such a good one and it's only short. It says, It's so hard to write about what this book is about, but I felt that with a fraction of the whole too. And I imagine that Tolts has a brain that never shuts off and if you can't keep up, it's your loss. You have to take a breath because the story is a tsunami. It's the story of a bizarre friendship. And like most stories, some of us are the observers, Liam, who might be standing in the splash zone of the entertainment, Aldo. Liam is richer for having Aldo, but also tormented by his love for his friend. And I thought, that's pretty cool if a, if a fan's able to articulate the, uh, the sort of the vibe of the book so clearly... Uh, that's who I'm quoting tonight. So um, I'd love to invite you, Steve, to... I think you're going to read yes. a little bit of the book. Okay, so I'm just going to read a little bit from the beginning. Uh, that way I don't have to set anything up, because, as Anton has described, it's much too complicated to set up. Um, so this is just from the very, very beginning of the book. Down at the foamy shoreline, where small, tight waves explode against black rocks... A lifeguard with feet wedged in the wet and vaguely tangerine sand stands shirtless like a magnificent sea Jesus. An ill-timed journey into a breaker knocks a boy on his little back. A bald man throws a tennis ball for his Labrador and a second unrelated dog bounds in after it. Through a gauze of mist, a brunette, tall and from where we're sitting, seemingly riddled with breasts, kicks water on the sunlit torso of her blonde companion. There are three other drinkers in the place, already tethered to the sunbleached bar. It is 11am, slumped in his cumbersome, mechanised wheelchair that squeaks somewhere down by the left back wheel when he's doing pressure lifts. Aldo squints out from sand-whipped windows into the tumour of searing light. He turns to me and says, I'm nobody's muse. I think, that's a great line right there. I take out my notebook and when he shoots me an outraged look, I say, that's right, motherfucker, I'm writing it down. <laughs> Aldo wipes the condensation off his beer glass and uses it to moisten his lips. I know you're tired of being fodder, but for me to finish this book, I confess, I need at the most your blessing and at the least unrestricted access to your innermost thoughts and feelings, you know, fantasies secreted inside secret fantasies I already know about, that kind of thing. 
Jesus, Liam, I say, you even take mocking yourself too seriously. I am serious. We sort of leer mildly at each other in the mirrored bar. This book, I say, will help you laugh at yourself again. I still laugh at myself. Not in proportion to how hilarious you are. Come on, Aldo, where'd your sense of humour go? I know where it went. But on only his second morning out of prison, I want to see if he will dare articulate it. He doesn't. Only dams the sudden gush of saliva with his sleeve, and when his face reddens in embarrassment, I go rigid myself. You know, I murmur, you could sue the state for failing their duty of care. He turns to me abruptly and pretends to startle, our old gag, and explains how justice is either impersonal and indifferent or extremely personal and shamelessly vindictive, and how finding yourself in front of our volatile jury system means submitting your fate to a bunch of people whose omelettes you wouldn't dream of eating for fear they hadn't washed their hands. (laughs) Aldo sets his mouth tight as I scribble that line and add, he says, with the eyes of a croupier doing back-to-back shifts. Down the bar, a man with a long ponytail who looks sunk in his own epic tale of woe gapes at us unapologetically. Aldo says, Have you ever had a woman say to you, Oh, you sad little man? (laughs) Not in those exact words. He rotates his chair 180 degrees and shouts, I recommend it to all women as a way to totally annihilate a person. (laughs) The bartender says, Can you two keep it down? I ask, Who called you a sad little man? Aldo is chewing something, maybe a part of his own mouth. I ask, was it Mimi? Was it Stella? Was it Saffron? He shakes his head. I ask, was it your physiotherapist? Was it your lawyer? Please tell me it wasn't that ear-candling woman. (laughs) Aldo's face is that of a child woken by lightning. He says, why should I let you write about me? Because you'll inspire people to count their blessings. His smile, when it arrives, is already vanishing. Hang on, he says, without inflection. And I know what's coming before it's uttered. I've just had an idea, he says to take to market. Oh? I settle in and listen to the patter of seagulls' webbed feet on the skylight. Two patrons loud slurp and emit full-bodied beer advert ahs. Halfway out Aldo's mouth, soft bubbling sounds that don't mean anything. The look on your face, he says, reminds me of that waiting period between the guilty verdict and the sentencing. Just tell me your idea. You know how we are such optimists, even our Armageddons aren't final? What do you mean? Well, it's post-apocalypse this, post-zombie apocalypse that. People are honestly fretting about what to do after the end times. Right, so? So you know the slight embarrassment you feel for someone who says they never think about death? Yeah. You know how it's weird that people will trust any old block of ice in their drinks? Yeah. You know how people are worried their kid's going to turn to them and say, what did you do to the biosphere, daddy? I laugh. True. You know how people used to want to be rock stars, but now they just want rock stars to play at their birthday parties? Uh Uh-huh. You know how we think, we now think pornography is free speech? Like, I don't agree with tentacle sex, but I'll die for your right to produce it? (laughs) Right. And we always knew people hated their freedom, but now we know they're also contemptuous of privacy. Sure. And you know how there's no replacement cycle too short for today's consumer? Of course. And how now we have the internet, you can't say, you ain't seen nothing yet anymore, since everyone's (laughs) seen everything by the age of 12. (laughs) Yep. And people are spooked that good and evil no longer struggle, but just work different shifts. Uh, Maybe. His eyes tour the room and return to me renewed. You know how the phrase, at least you have your health, now refers to the state of your organs as commodities you can sell in a pinch? Nobody thinks it means that. And how in our lifetimes we'll see the actual end of patience? His eyes probe my face for signs of impact. Okay, yep. The ideas bloom and flare. Bloom and flare. His fingers drum roll on the bar and end in a finger snap. 
You know how people divide the world into white privilege and black oppression and never mention Asians or Indians who are like half the planet? <laughs> uh-huh. You know how a surprisingly huge number of people like fake leather? Yes. And how people actually believe the obstacle to happiness is they don't love themselves enough? Sure. And how when someone's coping mechanism fails, they just keep using it anyway? Yeah. And how business sapiens are always having power nightmares? They're having what? Bad dreams during power naps, if you say so. Now he looks like a dog who has chewed through his leash and is waiting to pounce. You know how people still believe that happy couples don't have affairs? Uh-huh. And modern relationships are more like, I'll be alone with your thoughts if you'll be alone with mine? Sure. You know how while we're enjoying reading dystopian fiction, for half our, our population this society is dystopia? Aldo, wait. You know how our fear of turning into our parents has become the fear of inheriting copies of their genetic mutations? Aldo, hold on. You know how nobody who complains about income inequality thinks they personally have too much money? Aldo, just wait. You know how when people talk of first world problems, they forget to mention Alzheimer's and dementia? Can you wait? A mouthful of beer spills onto his shirt. You know how we're still stuck with this prehistoric flight or fight mechanism and now our bodies pointlessly secrete cortisol when we're just running for the bus? And, and how thanks to online comment boards, more people than ever before knows what it, what it feels like to be reviled? What's, you know how unrequited love has no real-world applications? What's your idea? Disposable toilets. I'll just finish there. If you want to find out how a disposable toilet works, you will have to buy the book. Um, Tell us about... uh, Well, that's our introduction to one of the main characters, Aldo, who is a frustrated inventor. Um, The big question I have for you is, how do you come up with all these useless inventions? Uh, Useless? (laughs) Disposable toilets? Useless. Um, Yeah, look, Aldo... I mean, Aldo is this kind of fearful, um, but kind of intrepid. Um, I guess he's like an amateur psychologist and a failed businessman, a patho- uh, pathological entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> and uh, he's the kind of person, in the book he's described as, um, as a kind of um, well-known parasite and failure with multiple bankruptcies who, who you might find... Um, in an alley sharing cigarettes with a masturbating hobo. Um, And, yeah, I guess, you know, at his ideas that... I mean, you know, there are... So he has all these ideas. Some of them, I think, um, you know... I'm kind of offering to the world, maybe. Like, uh, his other ideas are like a BB&B, which is a brothel bed and breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that could really take off. Um, Oh, look, there's there's, there's a ton more. I'm not going to come up with them now. But uh, the book is about fear, and so Aldo has this epiphany when he's... um, when he's kind of in his adolescence, that um, in order to counter anything bad that happens to him or to his loved ones, whether it be something medical or legal, whether he needs to kind of pay for lawyers or doctors or medicine or to buy his way out of trouble, he needs to become rich. And that is the way um, he's decided to do that, by sort of becoming an entrepreneur and coming up with these kind of get-rich-quick schemes um, but they just don't seem to work out exactly right. It's too bad. It is too bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, I wanted to talk a bit about the two friends in the book, about uh, Liam and Aldo, and 
that Liam, who we've also met uh, just in those opening pages, is uh, s setting about writing down uh, or capturing as much of, of, of Aldo as he can, what Aldo says, what Aldo does. Um, can we talk a bit about about friendship in the book and, you know, where that comes from? You don't have to... It doesn't have to relate back to me. But, you know. <laughs> well, at some point in the book, uh, he makes the observation that, you know... I, I'm not sure what age it is, but there's a certain age in which we, you reach. I guess I think it'd just be some, somewhere in your early 20s, I guess, where... Um, Although you can make a new friend, you can never again make an old friend. And um, so, with the, with the old friends, you're you're stuck with who, who whoever you have as <laughs> childhood. And sometimes you get lucky, um, and sometimes you don't. Um, I got lucky personally, uh, obviously. Um, but you know, sometimes like the book is a lot about friendship, and it and it talks about friendship, and it's but. Sometimes when you're writing um, uh, a book, what is actually um, a theme or a topic, in this case friendship, is like collateral damage for another theme or topic that I was actually aiming for. So, you know, when I wanted to write this book, being about uh, fear and suffering and all these kind of things, um, the, the relationship that I used was friendship. And... You know, there's the kind of Walt Whitman quote, which is, um, I contain multitudes. I feel like I contain sort of eight to 12 people. And I've written about, like, in this book, I've kind of written about two of them. My last book, I, I wrote about two, two of them as well. Um, and so I consider this book and my last book to be like, a, like they're kind of like spiritual autobiographies. And... Um, and so what I've actually done is really just kind of split myself into characters and before I kind of used the father and son relationship um, and this time, you know, I used friendship um, just because I didn't want to write another parent-child relationship. Um, and I also find, like, dividing your, yourself into multiple characters is kind of a... It's like a fun way to dramatise like ambivalence about certain things or certain ways of living or certain thoughts. Um, it's also a way to like include. I mean, I like kind of reading philosophy and like philosophical dialogues. It's it's a way to include kind of dialogues, but making them inhabit actual people. Good answer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I do love this line, by the way, while we're, before we move on from friendship, is this observation that the weird truth is I've often become good friends with people I originally disliked, and the more I downright loathed the person, the better friends we eventually became, <laughs> which I think is very... <laughs> that wasn't the case here. No, no. Um, you just mentioned um, you know, philosophy, and I think this, this novel is brimful of philosophy, philosoph philosophical kind of ruminations. And also it's about, uh, there's a lot of worldview in the book, you know, from the, from the point of view of these two characters. Um, within two pages we have lines like Liam saying, I'm sick of looking at you and perceiving a smaller, meaner universe. <laughs> and Aldo saying, 
with medical science improving at roughly the same rate as our environmental situation worsens, the most likely scenario is that the world will become uninhabitable at the precise moment the human race becomes immortal. <laughs> which I really love. <laughs> and the novel opens with a quote from Kafka, uh, which is, oh, plenty of hope, an infinite amount of hope, but not for us. And I think that that's a... Could you talk a bit about sort of philosophy and... and you know the the worldview of the characters in the in the book. Mm. Well, there's like I guess like one's own point of view is like an inexhaustible resource. So um, <laughs> <laughs> so what you know whatever I write, there I am is the kind of thing uh, I, I guess. And you know I like to write I guess um, humorously, and that and that also. But though, although that's not really a choice either, that's um, that's kind of I guess that come goes somehow back to to childhood or something. I think what what starts as a like a defense mechanism becomes a habit, and then it becomes a style, or um, it becomes I guess I think writing um, humorously came at the same time as I had this kind of uh, relationship to the written word. So that's kind of what comes out, and it doesn't matter what I'm writing about, whether I'm writing about something light um, and, and something that would be intrinsically humorous or something really dark. Um, and that's, that's basically why it sort of comes out like that. And I, I think, yeah, I'm not quite sure why. Like, philosophy for me is, like, there's a lot of kind of aphorisms, like um, ideas about art, ideas about... Um, about suffering and death and and they for me they come out um, as like little short stories so whenever I even if I read something like um, metaphysics or if you read any kind of art theory um, any kind of sentence to me is like a little short story so I feel like um, ideas are narratives as well and so it's like it contains um, the story itself contains sort of thousands of little short stories. Nice. It's weird that the book, I think, I found myself laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing, even though the there's some, some really bleak, you know, bleak points of view contained within it. Yeah, I think, you know, I guess there's that kind of difference between, like, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? And I used to think, no, I'm a realist, which is kind of the answer um, to pessimism. And then, um, <laughs> yeah, then I realised it doesn't really matter which which way you go. Um, you know, a lot of the book is also about luck and bad luck and... Um, whether you know fear, whether you by fearing do you bring on your fears, um, and is is bad luck somehow um, self harm by another name? Um, these are kind of things. I think they're based on things that um, experiences that that happened to me and um, that I kind of throw into the book. One of the characters, Morel, the art teacher, says, "If stuck." Descend to the floor of the abyss and exhume the idiosyncratic horror that made you. Um, <laughs> bleak. Um, but would you tell us, you know, tell us a bit about more where that comes from and and, and the abyss that, that that refers to? 
Yeah, so I mean, this book, as you might have noticed in the beginning uh, bit that I read, the character is in a wheelchair, he's, he's um, a paraplegic, and that's something that actually happened to me, that I was paralysed for a while. Um, so I was living in Paris and, um, and I was walking down the street one day and had this kind of sp- uh, spontaneous spinal cervical hemorrhage which left me uh, paralyzed and so I spent like a month in a hospital in in Paris and then you know, kind of medivaced back uh, to Australia and, and spent a number of months um, in hospital there learning you know basically I was told I wouldn't walk again or I probably wouldn't walk again or maybe I wouldn't walk they didn't really know um, and so I you know it, in that experience, which you know, definitely um, I, I, I used a lot for this book because it really made me think a lot about um, you know the idea of um, of suffering and the I guess the absurdity of endurance, like how much people can put up with any amount of, of things, even though when you sort of say it feels in, unendurable, um, you actually can endure almost anything. Um, and also there were complicated things of like feeling, um, you know, feeling sorry for myself and then you look next to the bed next to you and there's somebody who's just like slightly worse off than you and then you have that complicated thing of having to feel like annoyed because you have to feel grateful for your own <laughs> suffering. It's like, ah. Uh. Um, and so those kind of ideas which... Um, and also the other thing which I kind of wanted to include in the book is the idea of the, the stubbornness of personality because we you know we have this kind of myth I think in our um, societies is, is that you know especially um, that, that kind of feeling that you can do anything and you know and in cer- certainly in narratives where like you're, you're a certain way something like something big happens to you and then you know you're changed forever whereas my my experience of the people that I met in hospital, of myself and the other people, were they, you know, if if somebody was very energetic and optimistic um, before, then they were just energetic and optimistic in, you know, in their wheelchair. And if they were kind of a crappy, shitty person before, they were crappy and shitty in their wheelchairs. Um, and so the idea that we, you know, that we're, we're just so... You know, changed overnight is just is something that I didn't really find um, to be all that accurate. And um, and then the, the absurdity of the situation. So there was like, I mean, there were absurd things that happened. You know, while I was in hospital and while I was in that kind of area. But then um, afterwards, I kind of wanted to write about all this kind of thing too. Is is like I remember I because when I was in hospital, I was only halfway. Uh, writing a fraction of the whole so I didn't really have I hadn't sold that and I hadn't made any money and I had just been working in minimum wage jobs before and when I finally got out of hospital after a couple of months I realised I needed to get a job again so I went um, back to one of my old careers uh, as a TV extra uh, (laughs) which is uh, which I did for a number of years and uh, the very first job I got was on a show called All Saints, which is a which is Australian hospital drama. Um, so I got out of hospital. 
went to the agent, they said, go on to All Saints, went to wardrobe, got into a hospital gown, <laughs> and, um, and went to bed. Like, okay, they put me in like bed nine. I was like patient number nine or something. Um, and I was on for that week, so I was on like for three days. Um, and every day I was like lying in this like in this kind of simulacrum of of the experience that I just had, um, <laughs> and very embarrassingly, once the director had to wake me for snoring because because <laughs> you know it's there's there, there's some long days, um, but I mean I almost feel that maybe half of the book was kind of dreamed up in those three days because um, <laughs> it was just so ridiculous and so absurd. Um, and you know the character there's also um, surfing in this book and you know there's things that you know that that Aldo in his wheelchair does and that that also I mean I I generally um, I guess what I do is like do exaggerated versions of of something so for me I remember um, when I was in the in the hospital, I, there was a day where I had to do wheelchair skills. Where, in fact, they'd been coming to me for days, going, "Come on, it's time to learn how to use the wheelchair." And you know, I was like, "Ugh, I don't want to do it." And then, um, you know, I did some basic things, getting in and out of cars, that kind of thing. And then he's like, "Okay, now you need to go down a set of stairs." And I just was kind of terrified. It just wasn't wasn't my thing. And so, um, you know, and I, you know, I did it. Eventually, um, but it was just the whole thing was so terrifying. And then I was friends with a guy who just did that on the first day, and he was like, when I when I came out, and I was like, I finally went down the stairs, and then he showed me like he just like ran down the stairs. he just came down and up, and it was very easy for him. He'd been a base jumper, and he jumped out of a building, and his parachute hadn't opened in time. And about a year after I got out of hospital, I googled him just to see what he was up to and trying to find him. And I saw a photo of him surfing, um, you know, lying down. And I kind of knew that I wanted to incorporate that into the book as well. That's amazing. Can we? Um, would you like to read anything from the hospital oh, okay. section of the the book, which? Won't say anymore. Okay. Well, yeah. The uh, the hospital section is, is. I guess that's the only strictly autobiographical element of the book. Like, there's a lot of invention in here, and I, um, and I tried because I'm not I'm not a memoirist, and I don't write sort of autobiographical essays. Um, that is not the kind of writing that I do. But I desperately wanted to include this real thing that happened to me in the book. So in the course of the writing it just kept coming out dead um and because i don't I, generally if i've told if i've verbally told a story to someone i can't write it because the story's already been told um and so i think i tried for a year to write it like second person third person like i just tried many different ways um and then finally I came uh, to the conclusion that I, that I wanted to write it as a poem because that was the only way that um, I could still tell the story but include the process of discovery and the process of invention. Um, so I'll just read like one very short. This is from the beginning of the poem. Good news, Buddha. I'm finally in the now. Absolutely worst now ever. (laughs) I'm only 40 and already on my backup generator. 
My backpacking days are over, unless I'm the one in the pack. The best compliment I can hope to hear is vital signs are good. Everything bad in life will be worse from now on. Insomnia, diarrhea, hangovers. Every problem is the least of my problems. I used to work as an ensemble. Now I live like Trotsky died. God seized all my assets, and the door that was always open is now a wall. Even fight or flight will take time. I would totally wish this on my worst enemy. (laughs) Now would be a great time to get raptured. One Daisy Duke nurse in this sea of man hands wipes me with a towel you wouldn't dry a dog with. You're scheduled for an MRI, urodynamic study and crop rotation, she says, before rushing off to deal with the oil spill in bed seven, Lot's daughter in bed five, the squiggly thing in bed eight, the axolotl in bed nine. I catch her eye and make a check please sign in the air. She says, your stool sample has been sent to a psychic who helps police with missing persons. (laughs) It feels like I've swallowed cacti. Electric eels are going to the toilet over my major organs and I'm experiencing meteor showers, wielding a large-bore needle. Doctors like priests expect you to renounce your pain, she says. I vow to sit out rehabilitation. If I want to promote neuroplasticity, I'll hire a publicist. She says, the man who lives his life in pain will end up a torturer. And if you feel agony for too long, you are treated like one who hears voices. Late night, I wake in floodwaters, therapeutic time windows shutting. The spinal cord is not a ripcord, God, but I hope you landed safely. I'll just finish there. Nice. One of my favourite characters in the book is Morel. The, did I pronounce that correctly? Moral? It's up to you. Morel. <laughs> He's a high school art teacher uh, and the author of the book Artist Within, Artist Without. Uh, <laughs> both in his book and in class, he, uh, you know, he offers the budding artist uh, creative advice of questionable quality. Like, you can be wounded by applause, but some standing ovations are lethal. And there but for the grace of God goes God. I don't even know what that means. Uh, But I do like this one. And when you're looking for ideas, just remember, people often die straining on the toilet. Um, But some of the things he says feel grounded in a reality I think many creative people will understand. Like, when you begin a work, keep expectations low. Anticipate that you will be like the new groom who unexpectedly returns home from his honeymoon, a widower. And you were writing this book for six years, and is, is the book that we that we all read, is that the book that you started or set out to write? Oh, um, it's not really at all. Like, it's funny, if you ask me, I guess, what, how, you know, how did the book come into being? It's kind of, I have to really stretch my memory, and it's sort of... It's also misleading in a way because, and, and somewhat pointless to talk about because if it's, it's like if you ask me to describe a friend of mine and I tell you about the night of his conception and I tell you, you know, <laughs> what his parents did that night, um, it doesn't really tell you about the friend. Um, and in that same way, I mean, I could, I could tell you about the six months that the character of Aldo was a high court judge. I could tell you about... Um, 
the time that it was, the, the whole book was actually a war novel um, and they had reintroduced the draft back into Australia. That was, that was, that was like that for a while. Um, yeah, it's basically, I think, sometimes I think of it like, at, you know, when I went to university um, and I studied communications, at the end of the three years I had like um, a single piece of paper which was the... Um, which was my degree. Um, and at the end of the three years of writing this, uh, I also had a single piece of paper, which was page one. Um, and the truth is that, like, I probably, over the course of, uh, I guess, the first three years, like, there were, I, I was at page one um, for all that time. And, you know, there's now about 87 page ones that's in this book. Um, they're just not at the beginning. Um, and what... So what I started to want to do was, um, I guess you know, there's 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 a couple of reasons. Um, when I when I finished my first book, A Fraction of the Whole, it was like a thousand pages long. Printed it out and mailed it um, from Australia to the UK and to the US to try and find an agent. And it was this like big brick of a thing. Um, and very expensive to send out. And after like six months of encouraging rejections, um, the kind of rejections you're meant to feel pleased about, um, because they say, you know, congratulations, your book's amazing, but we don't want to publish it. Um, I came to the decision that I needed to to edit it down. And when after having not looked at it for six months, um, it became really obvious to me that there was a character in it that didn't belong. Sometimes it's like writing is like um, like a writer uses time, like a painter uses light, like to actually see. Otherwise, it's, um, it's impossible to finish something and then look back immediately and um, and see what's wrong with it. And so when I removed this, um, when I looked back to edit, I removed a character, and in like almost two hours, I think I removed like 350 pages of the book, um, and that character um, ended up sort of becoming Aldo. So that was that was a kind of a beginning, and the book Quicksand, you know, concerns itself, I think, so much with art and artists, the imagination and creation, and the search for a muse, and just not just not just a muse, you know, for Liam, who's who's blocked and is is trying to find something desperately to to lead him to to write, but. The, the book's full of artists and creative people. Is that is that something you can tell us about? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to. I guess you know, I, once I once I had um, sold my first book, you know, I sort of became a working artist, and then I, you know, I met a lot of artists. I was in a relationship with a painter, and so. I'd started to see kind of artist residencies, not the ones that I went to, but just ones I visited and um, artist squats and. I kind of wanted to write about artists as personalities because while we, whenever we talk, whenever artists talk about themselves, it's always in a very lofty way um, and kind of self-important. And I, you know, I believe that. I believe in, you know, in the meaning and the power of art. But at the same time, there's some very essential thing that artists are not telling you, uh, which is lifestyle. Like... How often does like a working artist have to wake up at 5 a.m. and commute to work and put on a uniform and stack shelves and have to deal with a shitty boss or have to deal with like really annoying customers? Um, 
And it's it's such a when I see the people that I know who are working artists and the people I know who are not. I mean, the the idea of naps, like naps, is a is a very big thing for artists. For every artist that I know, naps is like is a necessary point of their days. Um, <laughs> But nobody ever admits that, and at some point it becomes a chicken-egg thing. It's like, at what point did they work out that this is a possible way to live? Um, was it before they became an artist? Because um, that's a reason to do it. Um, and so, yeah, so I wanted to write about about those kind of people, if I consider myself as well. But um, and also, and also, I, as I kind of said before, I like I, you know, I like. For me, um, art and philosophy and narrative, they're all one of the same thing, which is a, a fiction um, and religion. And, um, you know, there's also kind of God makes an appearance, you know, somewhere in, in the book. Um, I guess because, you know, I realised also that, like, you know, the greatest fictional character is that's ever been is God and um, he's out of copyright so <laughs> anyone can use him at any time well that brings me to death uh, <laughs> which I think hang, death seems to be very present in this novel from the very beginning all the way through and then I think you've set up hospital and prison as kind of the, the hell on earth alternatives with death as the final destination. Um, could you tell us, just you mentioned this earlier, but the, the fear in the novel that's, that's a theme and, and also just death in general, you know, is, is this on your mind a lot? <laughs> uh, no, I never think of death. Uh, yeah, I don't know why, you know, I mean, certainly... Um, there, you know, certainly as as a child, I was actually was hospitalised as a child as well. So I have like very early memories of being in hospital and um, and being around sort of sick or dying people. And I think that definitely had an impact. Um, I also have to say three words: you games of chance, uh, which was a short <laughs> film I made at, at university, which was actually has very similar themes <laughs> to this book. Um, and. Yeah, the the idea, the central idea of the book, and it's a refrain that comes over and over again, which is the idea that we live in um, the society that we all live in is like actually a narrow bridge, on which either side is is the hospital society and the prison society, and at any moment, any one of us could sort of slip um, and fall into one or the other. I mean, the hospital one is kind of obvious, but, but you know, because barring a disappearing plane, we're all going to be in hospital at some point. Um, and the prison one, I, I've kind of always been um, fascinated by the idea of inadvertent criminality, like not from kind of economic or, you know, um, or, or drugs, but just, I guess, um, or addiction, but just the kind of thing, like when the... For instance, when you are a young person and you take ridiculous risks, um, I remember, like like anybody else, I did silly things, but at the same time, I was kind of neurotic. So I was, I had this kind of awareness of the risk and the potential, um, whether it was, you know, horse riding on LSD or um, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, worth it, or. You know, <laughs> 
or purchasing drugs from a strange person in India. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, or you always had a friend of a friend who, you know, someone that you know who was drunk and, you know, um, had an accident and killed the person in, in their car. Um, and so I think this kind of fascination that I've had since childhood of, of um, hospitals. And, and, I mean, the whole book, I guess, is about fear. Aldo has this kind of an enormous amount of fears, both rational and irrational. So it's not only prison and hospital, but, he, you know, he has a fear of um, causing an avalanche by sneezing or, you know, accidentally procreating with a half-sister or being shot in the face <laughs> by a hunter. Things that... <laughs> that could happen and I you know um, and I my first book was about the fear of death and this book was about the fear of life um, and I fear that I fear that fear is is such a big thing in our in every aspect of our lives in kind of all the decisions I think every decision we make is about is about fear in some way um, and you know as a society with kind of fear of the other, other races, other, you know, um, just other other people. I mean, he, even here in America, you have those kind of like, well, in some places, they have this like stand your ground laws, you know, and that's just about legislating fear, about perceived fear. Um, and I think, yeah, fear just runs runs everything. And, and so I, I feel like I'm actually writing a fear trilogy. So the last, the next book <laughs> will be about some, a third fear. That's awesome. Thank you, man. And um, well, I'd love to hand over before we finish up. If anybody's got any questions um, for the author, um, please go ahead. Please awkwardly raise your hand. <laughs> so, of the eight to hi, Steve. Hi, Sarah. Of the eight to twelve characters, so you have like several more, at least four or five more novels in you. Yes. Unless you bring you. Put them all in one novel, maybe. Is the next one three, or are they always going to be pairs? Well, I mean, I say that they're pairs, but they're actually they've actually been probably three or four in each novel so far. Um, so the other, uh, like in this in this book also, when I, Anton was talking about um, the muse, like I want to, you know, when we think of the muse, we often think of of muses as women. Um, so I wanted Aldo to be the muse, and um, the other artists um, who use him as, as uh, women. So there's in this book there's Stella and Mimi, um, and you know I think I've also split myself a little bit into them. So I think you know I've actually done about nine of my people. So I only got three <laughs> left. I got one book left, then I'm out. <laughs> Anybody else? Yep. Steve, how do you cope with writer's block? Ah, oh, with writer's block. Um, I'm blocked right now in answering your question. Uh, uh, well, no, I, I just... I know what you should do with writer's block. It feels like I know what you should do, which is walk away. Um, and what I do is I just kind of keep hammering until I, I cut through. And as I said, like, um, I'm not afraid, although maybe I should be, to walk to go down wrong paths. So if I if I don't know what the right thing to do is, I'll I'll pick something. And you know, sometimes that's a terrible, terrible thing to do because you know you can sit you know at your kitchen table one morning and think, you know, and you you're creating your story and you think, well, maybe the character does this. And then six months later, you have like compiled that this thing of 
of, of paper and of you've written like thousands and thousands of words in six months um, all because of that decision you made that morning and if that was a bad decision uh, you know you've, you've really wasted some time I guess it's, it's not being afraid to waste months which um, uh, and so but at the end of every bad decision I made there's always been like something valuable um, but uh, the, the alternate answer to that question is Netflix <laughs> yes. hey. What's your napping schedule? <laughs> oh, that's good. That is a very important question. Well, well, you know, pre pre child and post child is different. <laughs> pre child, then you know, with several naps. Now, I, I I usually write in uh, two hour blocks, and I fit as try and squeeze as many two hour blocks into a day as possible. And my general, um, because I still write longhand, and so my general uh, process is to spend each of those two-hour blocks in a different location. I don't know why, but that's what I do. So, you know, two hours at the, at the beach, two hours in a cafe, two hours in a library, um, usually close to home, so I can come back for those all-important naps. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about your title. Did you, um, not that this is something you had to have done, but did you, did you think about the uh, the other novel, Quicksand, the Noah Larson novel? No, you know, it's one of the, it was. This was a lot. This was a fairly last minute uh, title choice. I, I think I think that I was really like I've got to send this manuscript out, um, and I don't have a title for it. Um, and there's a couple of reasons I picked it. Like, um, I mean, this has been pointed out by other people, but if you were, um, because the book's about fear, and if you were a child of the 70s, as we were, and you watched a lot of TV, as I certainly did, uh, you know, quicksand was such an enormous part of every television show. <laughs> Gilligan's Island, like, Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner. Yeah, I don't, yeah. And, um, and so, you know, in, in the catalogue of, Fears ridiculous and otherwise. Um, I, you know, I thought quicksand. That's a that's a great fear that I remember, you know, desperately fearing. And then, you know, the other thing was, because the book is about about struggling with those fears. It's that um, the idea that certainly I don't know how real this is, but in Gilligan's Island, I learned <laughs> that the more you struggle. Um, the deeper you sink, and um, I had not heard of that other book. I mean, do you know when it was released? It's like from the thirties or forties or something. Um, no, at some at some point, these things, you know, just you just have to. Um, I think there's like a statute of limitations on on titles, and I think uh, fifty years. I've not read that book. Have you read the book? Is it is it a great book? It's a good book. Okay, I'm going to read it. <laughs> All right. Well, question, even though I've not yet read this book, sure. have it here and show it. Um, I was scanning some reviews before I came down here. The character is a police officer, is that correct? Yeah, one of the characters, uh, Liam uh, Wilder, is a police officer. I have a question for you, because I had a funny conversation last weekend with a friend of mine, and I was saying how, in my head, every day, I know it's irrational, but I think that I'd be a great homicide detective, <laughs> even though I haven't done <laughs> In my head, I'm like, I want to get a chance to show how good I could be. I could really nail that job. And I feel like, as somebody like many who experiences a certain amount of free-floating anxiety around 
you know, just the mundane tasks of work and living. Every day I'm just like, I wish I was a police officer, because then when people were like, well, it's not like it's a matter of life or death. I could be like, yes it is! <laughs> like, I'm on the job, and it does matter, and it is life or death. Because sometimes even dealing with mundane details, I still feel like... Well, I think you should definitely do that. <laughs> I think that sounds like you would make a great detective, without question. But I'm just wondering, um, I'm just curious, because it's unusual outside of a few sort of legendary examples to have somebody in the law enforcement in a novel that's not a genre novel or things like that. So I was wondering if you feel a similar dichotomy, or sometimes I'm like, I wish my job actually justified the level of anxiety I sometimes feel. Well, in, in this in this book, what, what happens is um, the art teacher, Morel, gives the character Liam, uh, who is a writer, advice, which is um, never have a fallback career, never acquire any kind of skill, um, because you'll eventually fall back on it if you want to like stay true to your, your work and your art. And so he just he does that, and he spends his 20s kind of, you know, he starts at the bottom and works his way sideways, going from minimum wage job to, to minimum wage job. And uh, eventually has an idea for a novel about a policeman, and he joins the police academy for research, and then when that novel fails, he realises that the, he's, he's inadvertently gotten the qualifications of a police officer. Um, and so just basically, that's, that's how he's accidentally becomes a police officer. Uh, so it's... Um, it's a total accident, and he's he's not really good at it, and doesn't enjoy it. So. <laughs> Please thank Steve Toltz. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. And we hope to see you soon.